kiddos, if you want to go, or if your parents want you to go out, head on back into the fellowship hall. will say we're we're sending the kids out but I've been teaching the third through sixth graders on Wednesdays and they are smart and have a lot of questions that <laughs> are difficult to answer so uh, we went through we call it stump the grump uh, they ask questions write it down I get to be the grump and they get to stump and uh, it, it was a lot of fun and so we need to make sure if you send our kids it's great but we need to make sure that we are answering their questions and and allowing them to feel like they can come and ask us anything that they need to uh, Genesis 33, verse 17 is actually where we're going to start. This is a hard passage, not because there's unknown things that are happening, not because there's theology that's very deep and complicated. This is a hard passage because the sin that inhabits this text, and that inhabits us, is much worse and deeper than we would ever want it to be. It's hard and it's grotesque. It's atrocious. And so it's not a passage that's in any kid's Bible that I'm aware of. It's not a passage that we memorize as an uplifting and, and a passage that kind of brings us up. You know, like if you're feeling discouraged, you don't turn to Genesis 34. Really, uh, I talked to a few pastors this week, and none of them had, had ever preached through Genesis, so they'd never come to Genesis 34. The, really, the only way you would get to it is if you're doing book by book, verse by verse, expository preaching. And even in passages like this one, and there's others we've already covered in Genesis, when we come to them in our Bible reading plans and we're reading through, we really want to quickly move past them to kind of get to the easier, the more digestible things. And we'll see that in Genesis 35, where God kind of redeems Jacob again, reaffirms, you're not Jacob, you're Israel, now act like it. But I want to start this morning with, with actually a text in the New Testament that just remind us of, of why we do this and why we don't skip it. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So when Paul says all scripture, Genesis 34 is in that. It is profitable for you and I for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And, and just on a side note, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, there is a growing and a growing antimosity towards Christianity. And Bible passages like this are ones that people will turn to and say, you believe in a God that does this kind of things? And if we're Christians, we need to know how to respond to those by saying, well, why is this passage in the Bible? which is what we'll look at this morning. So let's pray, and then we will dive in. God, I thank you that we do have this passage. I thank you that we do have to sit and, and look at sin, God, that it's not something we can just divert away from. And God, I thank you that you didn't just look away from sin. That our response to sinful situations is often more in compounded sin, but your response to sin, God, is to send Jesus to come yourself and to take up a cross that you didn't deserve and to bear a wrath that you didn't earn and to give away righteousness that was yours to us. Not by anything that we have done to earn it, not by any, anything that we have done to deserve it, not because we're great and we're awesome, but because you get the most glory out of life by lavishing your grace and lavishing your mercy on sinners. 
pray that this passage would encourage us in, in whatever way we might find encouragement here. That it would convict us, God, in ways that we need to be convicted. And that at the end we would grow in you and glorify your gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genesis 33, verse 17. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of this place is Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Haman, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. Then he erected an altar, and he called it El Elohi Israel. So last week I preached through Genesis 33, and I was very tempted. I almost put that section of Scripture in that sermon, but decided I wanted to, to move it to this one because it, it flows very well into what happens in Genesis 34. What we see here, and it, it seems kind of like it's just a cast off, like it's just a transition to the next stage, but what happens here is important for us to understand what happens next. Jacob is 99% obedient to God, but not 100%. It, it, and we see that in this passage where he settles because it's a compromise that Jacob does. He's tired of sojourning. He's tired of wandering. He's tired of limping around. He wrestled God. Now he has this limp that he carries with him, and so he settles. He purchases land. He builds a house. He has these booths. He, he initially does it in Sukkoth, and then he goes to Shechem, which is important. It tells us Haman and Shechem's, is Shechem's father. We're going to get to that in a minute, but those are two important people in the story coming up. And so he builds this altar. He names it El Elohi Israel. Elohim is, is God in, in Hebrew, and El is short. And so uh, we know Israel means strives with God. So he names this place God, uh, who is the God of the God who strives or strives with God. It's just this repetition that, that Jacob does. But the reason why he's not completely obedient is because Shechem is 20 miles from Bethel. Bethel is the place where Jacob saw the angels ascending and descending. It's where heaven meets earth. It's where Jacob was supposed to go back to. And instead, he gets almost all the way there, but he compromises and he settles 20 miles away. And then he goes through this facade of, I'll just build this altar here and I'll worship God the way I want to worship God, right? It's the right God. It's just the wrong way to worship him. And he hides this disobedience in this religious facade. I'll do all the right things. I'll walk the right way. I'll say the right stuff, but it's not actually worshiping God. It's Jacob being almost obedient to God, which is disobedience. Instead of trusting God, he settles. He's tired. And maybe you're thinking, that's a lot to draw just from this little text. Let's just jump into verse 34, and I'll show you why that's important. Genesis 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. 
If you remember back in the Battle of the Babies when Rachel and Leah were having children and naming them to spite each other and to try to earn favor with Jacob, in that list there's one daughter that's mentioned, Dinah. She probably isn't the only female, the only daughter, but she's the only one that's mentioned, and she was mentioned back then so that when we get to this story, we kind of see where her place is. She's the daughter of Leah. And what she does is extremely dangerous, and the way the Hebrew words it is, it's not something she normally does. She just got on a whim one day, and she went out into the land to go see what the women of the land were doing. This is dangerous. If you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, it's one of the things that draws Ruth to Boaz. As Boaz says, come to my fields, and I'll protect you at my fields. But if you go to the other fields, you're in danger. It's the same idea here with Dinah, but she has no Boaz in this story. So she leaves the protection of her family. But don't forget, Jacob compromised. They're not supposed to be in Shechem. They're supposed to be in Bethel. But he said, 20 miles, that's good enough. I've got this limp. I'm tired. I'm just going to compromise. I'm just going to settle. And so here amongst these pagan people, when Dinah leaves to walk around, doing something she should not have done, leaving her father and her brother's protection, Shechem, the man the city's named after, so a prominent figure within the city, sees her. And he takes her and he humiliates her. It's not an easy way to say what he does. He, he rapes her. And we see this idea of sin playing out. He sees her, he takes her, and he defiles her. And we see this with the serpent in the garden where Eve sees the fruit, she takes the fruit, and she eats the fruit. It's this consistent pattern of how Satan works on these things. He forcibly sleeps with Dinah, humiliates her. Now what is she to do? But then we see something odd happens at, at the tail end of that. I don't know if you caught it. Is Shechem, Shechem has this odd relationship with his dad, and he is drawn to Dinah after he's raped her. And so he goes to his dad, and he says, I want to marry her. And so Haman, which we'll see through the story, does everything for Shechem. Tells his daddy, I want to marry this girl. And so Haman goes about making this thing happen. Now, in the back of our minds, we should be thinking, I wonder how Jacob is going to do this. Jacob's a wrestler. He's a fighter. Sure, he has a limp, but this is his daughter now. Surely he's got something. He's, he's been cunning. He's deceived Esau. He's deceived Laban. He's done all sorts of things. Now when there's an actual evil that's done to somebody in his family, certainly Jacob will do something to protect her, something to, to justify this, something. I read stories like this, and my soul longs for justice on them. So let's see, verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke to them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. 
make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourself, and you shall dwell with us in the land, and you shall be open to you, dwell and trade it in, and get property in it. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great bridal price as a gift, and I and you will, and I will give you whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Jacob does nothing. He hears that his daughter has been defiled, raped, and his response is not righteous anger. His response is not even seemingly hurting for his daughter. He holds his peace until his sons come back. And there's a part of me that's like, I get it. You have this this limp and you want some backup with you. But there's another part of me that goes, that's your daughter, man. There's not a sign of remorse. There's not a sign of, of anything. And largely for Jacob, this is largely his fault. He's supposed to be in Bethel. 99% obedience is not enough. I wonder if Dinah had been Rachel's daughter, his favorite wife, if he would have done something. And so her brothers show up, and they are livid. They are indignant. They are very angry. It's worth noting that neither Jacob and and none of his sons turn to the Lord in their response. There's not a hint of prayer that happens in this passage. They don't seek God. They let their emotions well up within them and control them. And so then Hamor, Shechem's dad, strolls up like nothing happened at all. To me, this is the worst. Like, I, I know that sin happens, and I know that lives are broken, but pretending like this is normal and that this is okay, and it's nothing to fret about, it's just some exchange that happens between two people, like, that just wounds me. Like, I, I, it riles me up to a point. I just want to scream. I just want to, like, stop. I just, it's one of those passages that it gets me. There's, there's no repentance. There's no, hey, I'm sorry about what happened. It's just, hey, this happened, and now he loves your daughter, so let's just make this into a contract where, where your people can come and have kids with my people and my people go have kids with your people and we'll just end up being this one nation he proposes a merger and in his merger he promises all of the things that God promises in the covenant that he makes with Abraham land children and wealth a blessing Shechem jumps in too. Again, no acknowledgement of that, that raping Dinah was wrong. Instead, he just ignores it and he says, hey, I love your sister. So ask whatever bridal price that you, you want. It, it's hard to tell here because you in English can be plural or singular. That second you in verse 12 is y'all. It's plural. So he's talking to the brothers. Name your bridal price for your sister. I'll give you whatever you want. This city is named after me. My dad will pay whatever you want for this. Just let me have your sister. There's no repenting. There's no saying that that was wrong, that he shouldn't have done it. It's just this acknowledgement of this happened, so let's just make this work out together. He says, I love your sister. But love is not what he did. Love is not dominating the other person and treating them like an object that can be used and tossed around. 
See, in the Bible, marital love is, is this mutual submission to the Lord. It's a covenantal commitment to one another. It has a staying power. We say this in our wedding vows, till death do us part. And Paul takes the imagery of marriage in Ephesians 5, and he says this marriage this is the mystery of the gospel, that in Genesis 2, when Adam and Eve are created for one another and married together, that from then on, marriage is a shadow of the gospel that is to come, that Christ in the church covenants marriage marriages together. God sanctifies marriages. That's why God says to Christ in the church that Christ covenants with the church and that he sanctifies the church. He grows the church for his glory and for our good. And this is why marriage is so important for Christians and it's why marriage is so attacked in our world right now. And there's some new research that's done. It is blowing the mind of unchristian people. And the new research says that if you live together before you're married, you are statistically more likely to get a divorce. It's almost like God knows what he's talking about. But because of sin, because of pride, because of desires, because of emotions, because of feelings, we think we know better than God. We don't. And so these pagan unbelievers want to do life with Jacob's family, become one body, one people. This makes complete sense in a worldly sense. You grow your number of people. You're more sustainable. You can protect each other better. But that is 100% not trusting in the Lord. See, Shechem's understanding, this is a whole other sermon I've done for youth kids, and maybe we need to do it. Shechem's understanding of love is that love is this feeling that you can fall into, and that's just a lie. It's not something that can't be controlled. God says, love your neighbors. It's a choice. And so he offers to pay the bridal price, whatever Jacob, whatever the brothers want. So how will God's people respond to this sin? Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to the one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are, every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us, and be circumcised, and we will take our daughters, and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing. He delighted in Jacob's daughter, and now he was the most honored of all his father's household. So there's a part of me that reads this, and I go, okay, I get it. I see what's happening now. The brothers, not Jacob, have developed this plan. But this plan, the Bible says, is deceitful, but they do so to avenge their sister. It's revenge. I I get that. My heart leans towards like, yes, they defiled your sister. You go and you get them and you do whatever you need to do to make this right. I get one. I don't have a sister, but I get wanting to protect your sister. 
and I get how those emotions boil up. I know my heart, and I know my life. If I know somebody speaks ill of my wife or my kids, like I know what happens inside of my heart and in my mind. I know the emotions that, that boil up inside of me. In fact, over the years I've learned I have to just keep my mouth shut sometimes. My mouth is much quicker than my brain. And we have this natural desire for justice. But often what happens in our desire for justice is it turns from true justice to vengeance and revenge. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you much more. You hurt my family, and I'm going to hurt you in such a way that you will never touch my family again. And so the brothers take a note from death. When Jacob settled in Shechem, he maintained his religious obedience on the outside, at least. He went through the motions. And so the brothers take another important religious element, circumcision, and they use it for their plan. All the kids are gone, so I'm just to make sure we understand what circumcision is, it is taking off the foreskin of the penis. This would be done only by males, and it would be done eight days old if you were Jewish. If you came into the faith, you would do it as an adult. And it symbolized the cutting and the removal of sin and casting it away. And at the same time, it marked off a people that were different and distinct from the world. It was a sign of the covenant that God gave his people and so that Jacob's sons are not asking Shechem and all of his people to become believers in God did you catch that they're not saying hey this is the God that you should be worshiping this is what we want you to do if you want to do this come in to our covenant family here let's let's teach you about Elohim let's teach you about Yahweh and his goodness and how he relates to people no no they say you just need to be circumcised Just go through the exterior religious motions, look the part, and everything else will be fine. This is the equivalent of saying, like, if my daughters come home and they say, I found this boy I want to marry, but he's never been baptized. And if I said, okay, well, let's just baptize you. Forget about the gospel. Forget about whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. We're just going to baptize you. But then in the baptism booth, I do something completely different. We'll get to in a second. That's what they do. What Jacob and what he's taught his sons are saying is that God doesn't actually change you on the inside. I mean, I feel like we've walked through a lot of hard things. I'm just going to lay out some stuff that that may offend us, but they're things that we need to think through at the least. This is why I'm not a fan of massive baptism services. You see people in the moment with the emotions welling up where they're just getting dunked in water. They're not actually getting baptized. They're getting wet. And their lives don't look anything different than an unbeliever's life because the reality is they're not believers. But it feels good to be a part of that. This is why, and and maybe this will explain some things because I know there's some tension with some of us. This is why I don't do altar calls very often. I was in youth ministry for almost 10 years, and I sat and counseled so many kids and so many people. When they hear the music well up in the background, they walk down front, and they make a commitment that they have absolutely no desire to keep when the emotion wears off. I have no desire in our church to create an environment and a culture where those are the kinds of decisions that we're fostering. It should be pretty clear that we sang with hymnals. (laughs) 
There's no fog machine. There's no music. It's hymnals. And it was phenomenal. Hearing one another worship God ought to stir our souls to worship God more. My heart for our church is to create a church culture where we hold up the gospel. And if we say anything happens here, it happened because the Lord had a part to do with it, not because we manipulated people's emotions. I don't want to give a false assurance of salvation. So listen, I'm, look, I'm always available to you. We have little kids that kick me out of the bed usually every single night. You call me at 2 in the morning, it's probably me shuffling to the couch. But what seems to be happening is going through the motions is enough for Shechem and Haman. The question they have to come up with is how are they going to convince the other men to get on board with this? Verse 20. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For, uh, uh, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. But will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. So Hamor and Shechem go to the gate. This is where all the men gathered around. This is the alley before the alley existed, where they're just sitting around talking about what was happening in life and how hard it is at the factory. And so Shechem and Hamor come in and they pitch this idea to all of these men. The root is Shechem wants to marry Dinah after he's raped her in this horrible, heinous way. That's what's going on. But to get permission to marry her, he's like, well, we'll become one people. And then we get permission from the men, right? Remember, the men are going to have to go through these circumcisions. So you're going to have to be really good salesmen to convince these guys this is what you ought to do so you can marry this one girl. And essentially what he says is, we're going to become one people, but eventually we're going to get all of their stuff and then we'll dominate them. We'll have their wealth. We're going to steal their wealth from them for doing this. All we have to do is go through this religious cycle, go through this one little thing that they have this weird whatever deal about that we have to do. If we will just get circumcised, then we can pretend like we're one big happily family until we steal all of their stuff. And so they say, deal. Circumcised that day. Verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city, but they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and they took their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and all the field and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives and all that was in the house, they captured and plundered. few details I want to point out about this that, that we're going to get to in, in later chapters in Genesis. 
The two sons who take up swords are important, Simeon and Levi. These are two of Leah's sons. They're the second and third son in, in order. They're not the oldest, but they're the second and the third son. I read this and I think, finally, they get what they deserve. They raped Dinah. They were going to steal everything. Way to go, Simeon. Way to go, Levi. The problem is that's not how the Bible views this. They don't seek God in any way looking for justice or vengeance. In fact, what they do is they take that religious ceremony that's supposed to be something so much more than just something you do to fit into the crowd. It represents that you are a child of God. You are one of his people, a descendant of Abraham. And they use it for mass murder. It's the same thing as I take the boy who wants to be baptized so he can marry my daughter, has no idea what the gospel is, doesn't care what the gospel is, and I say, sure, take him to the baptistry and, like Weldon said, hold him underwater and drown him. That's what they do. Man, that's meant to be sacred. That's not meant to be something that we use for our purposes to get vengeance for things that we feel wronged about. It's not something for us to use as sinful revenge or vengeance. God says, vengeance is mine. They wait three days until the men are really sore and they can't fight back and they kill all of them, including Hamor and Shechem. The sad detail of this story that gets lost is they rescue Dinah from Shechem's house. She's been there the whole time. And they plunder everything that wasn't nailed down. And we can feel like this is justice. But it's not. Dinah has still been raped. The God of Jacob has been mocked by mocking circumcision. Murder is still murder. And we see that now there's kids who are fatherless and wives who are husbandless. And the question we have to ask is, where has Jacob been in this story? Verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, my numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me, and I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And they said, well, should, we treat our, uh, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? End of story. That's where 34 ends. Zero resolution. Jacob responds by getting mad at Simeon and Levi. And he doesn't get mad at them for the right reasons. He gets mad at them because he's like, well, now my life's going to be harder because of what you two just did. Have all these people around us that I'm trying to please. Have all these other nations that we're trying to dwell with. We don't own any land. We're sojourners, son. Do you not remember this? And so now we're trying to walk here. And I have this limp. I can't fight off these guys. And so if they come after us, it's going to destroy all of us, me and my household, which was you two. And it's worth pointing out, every time one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, get scared of other people that they live around, it's the women that end up paying the price for this. Jacob gets scared of the Egyptians, and so he tells them, ah, Sarah's not my wife, she's actually my sister, take her, Pharaoh. Twice he does that. Two times Sarah's life is put in danger because of those things. Isaac does the exact same thing with Rebekah. She's not my wife. Don't come and kill me. She's my sister. Take her. She's yours. Go. 
And in those stories, God protects them. But in this story, Jacob sells his daughter out. He's scared of the people. That's why he doesn't go and attack. He's scared that he can't fight. That's why he waits for his sons. And so she's raped, and he doesn't really seem to care anything about her or about that. All he cares about is now his life's going to be hard. People are going to be mad at me now. And the brothers respond with, well, should he treat our daughter like our sister like a prostitute? It's a question that never gets answered. Not by Jacob, at least. Essentially, they're saying, well, at least we did something, Dad. No resolve. Just a family dealing with sin. And then when they deal with sin, they deal with sin sinfully and in various ways. And so that sin is not addition. It's not one sin plus one sin equals two sins. It's multiplication. That sin is compounded, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows, and it gets into gray areas and hard areas where it can look at this and be like, there's not really a hero in this story. Jacob settled and compromised. He wasn't even supposed to be in Shechem. But he goes through the religious motions, and at the end of the day, he compromises so that on the outside, he looks holy but on the inside you have a disobedient patriarch and he's disobedient because he's scared Jacob's sons have a righteous anger over a genuine wrong that had happened but their response to sin was more sin see that's the thing we struggle with sin does not correct sin When we respond to somebody's sin against us with more sin, it never makes it right. It makes it wronger or more worse. They defile circumcision, the setting apart of God's people, the symbol of cutting away sin and flowing it far away. Now circumcision is a sign of, no, no, come on in and let's let's trick you into this religious thing. They're not scared, but they're not seeking the Lord either. They take matters into their own hand because their motto is it's easier to seek forgiveness than permission. And we could step back from this grotesque story and all the details of this story and we could see how we respond to sin matters. If we turn to religious rituals, trying to earn our way out of these things. I'm going to do something to make myself feel better for my sin. It never works. We can have these emotional commitments that we make that we have no intention of keeping once the emotions wear off. I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to that are struggling with things, that are wrestling with God, and they're like, but I walked the aisle, I prayed the prayer, I did all the things I was supposed to do at VBS when I was 10, and now they're 40, wrestling with who God is, because it never went anywhere after that. Or we try to take these religious things and and twist them and, 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 and do things with our own hands. We'll seek forgiveness later for sins that I know I'm going to commit in the future. do those things, what we're showing is we do not think that God and the gospel is enough for us to be controlled by them. 
When we do those things, what we show a world is that God is someone to be controlled by us for our own means to an end, and that the gospel is good news because I can make the gospel whatever I want to be, whatever good news I want it to be in the end. We love the forgiveness aspect of the gospel, but as far as changing motives and actions, I'm good. What this text does remind us of does remind us of the power of the gospel by exposing false gospels. See, the power of the gospel is Jesus responds to sin much differently than they do in the story and then you and I respond to sin. Jesus responds to sin not by doing some religious act that has no weight behind it. Jesus doesn't respond to sin by killing all of the sinners. Could you imagine that? Who would be left? No, his response to sin was to take up my cross. To take up your cross. To take the wrath that I deserve, the wrath that I have earned, this the wrath that you have earned, the wrath that you deserve. And to bear it while we laugh and mock it. Jesus' response to sin is not to pretend like it doesn't happen, but to deal with it. And he deals with it on the cross. And those who believe in Jesus, he doesn't just say, great, now you're forgiven. He gives you a new life because that's what we need. And so maybe for you, that's the gospel that's missing, is a gospel that, that is actually real. It's not some religious facade that we just paint on the side of our buildings or we post on Facebook and then we go living like pagans. No, the gospel changes us from the inside out because Jesus died the death that I deserve. And maybe for you, stories like this bring back terrible memories. Maybe for you, stories like this are a little too real. gospels for you too. Maybe you're the one who's been wronged in the story. You're Dinah. And it doesn't seem like anybody actually cares about you. They just care about getting vengeance or they just care about their reputation or they just care about their life being easier or harder after this, but you kind of get lost in the cracks of this. Maybe that's you, man. The gospel's for you too. The Lord sees you. And he hears you. And he knows you. And he has not abandoned you. See, no amount of religious works can save you. Only Jesus can. No amount of seeking vengeance against sinners can save you. Only Jesus can. No amount of wicked things done to you can keep you from salvation. Jesus is a much better Savior than you and I are sinners. Jesus is a much better Savior than you and I could ever be dug down and treated as objects. Only Jesus saves. So the question we have to answer is what is your response to sin? If our response to our sin is to trust and to obey Christ, we have eternal life forever with Our response to sin is anything else. Bitterness towards God. 
bitterness towards people, a works-oriented salvation, or I want to feel better because I have this past of things that I've done, if it's anything other than trust and obedience in Jesus Christ, then it sends us to an eternal life of separation, of, of the sin of hell from God. Of the wrath, because in the end, God is just, and justice is what God will bring. Sin will be punished. It will be punished on the cross of Jesus or it will be punished with us in eternity. The choice that we have is to accept the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ or to continue trying to live our lives grasping for whatever it is that we feel brings us worth and value. Let's pray. God, this is such a difficult passage. And it's such a heavy passage. But God, you are still God. And you see those who've been abused. You see those who've been hurt. You see those who've been wounded. You see those who've been raped, God. And justice will come. And God, you see our sin. It doesn't surprise you. You're aware completely and fully, more so than we are, of what our sin is. And it doesn't stop you from coming to the cross. It doesn't stop you from paying the price. It doesn't stop you from lavishing grace and lavishing mercy on us. God, I pray that as we respond by singing, And it feels odd, God, to try to sing to you after a sermon like this. But God, you're a God who does, like, we worship you and we glorify you in the midst of hard and real life things. I pray, God, that our hearts, that our words, that our minds, that our actions would be worshipped towards you as we sing with a hymnal and no music. And reflect on your glorious gospel in a hurt and a broken and a wounded world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Vince is going to lead us. I'll be here to pray with you. If you need somebody to pray with, let's worship together.